Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. Well, good morning. As Pastor Ben said, my name is Bailey Sonnenberg, and I am a student at Indiana Wesleyan University. And it truly was a joy this past summer to intern here at the church. And uh, I was speaking with Pastor Ben the other day, and I think he said it well. He said that this is one of those special Sundays each year. And for this church and for other churches as well, where pastors like to take their holiday time and interns get to preach. So here we are, good, bad, or indifferent. But in all seriousness, of course, you're pastors have worked hard through the Christmas season, and I consider it a uh, great and humbling privilege to deliver the word to you all again this morning. So whether you're new here today or if this is uh, the church you call home, I'd like to say welcome. We are glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning, and we don't believe that you've been brought here today by accident. I'd also like to Extend a welcome and good morning to those who are tuning in on the live stream, as many are out of town and traveling for this holiday season. Coming home from college, no matter the time of year, I'm always reminded of how valuable and precious it is to have a church community like we do here in Napoleon at Napnaz. Leading up to Christmas time each year, I look forward to and eagerly anticipate the holiday season where oftentimes families and friends gather together to share meals and celebrate the birth of our Lord. Many families have standing traditions that they uphold and practice year after year, whether it be exchanging gifts or sharing meals together or traveling. Maybe some of you have unique tradition of your own that you were able to partake in this past week. For me, a distinctive and even nostalgic Christmas experience that I hold closely is from when I was younger, journeying out to a farm with my family and chopping down an evergreen tree to put in our living room. That smell of fresh pine quickly takes me back to memories of being together with people in the midst of an exciting season, a season where we all took a break from the normal rhythms and routines of work and school and life. And it's always been a time where we as people, at least generally speaking, look to a new calendar year with hopes and goals and resolutions to be better than we were before, whatever that may mean. A time when we're invited to consider and to reflect on who we are and the trajectory of who we're becoming. On the flip side, though, that hopefulness and sweet nostalgia seems to wear off pretty quickly when the holiday season comes to a close and the rhythms of life return to their former state of busyness and chaos The Christmas music stops playing, and eventually the decorations come down. Maybe they haven't yet, but at least for my family, we were left with a pile of pine needles on our living room floor. Weeks go by, and so often those resolutions are swept away, just like the pine needles. But you see, there's irony in the fact that these Christmas trees that wither were originally meant to serve as a symbol of life and longevity during the harsh winter seasons in Central Europe around the time of the winter solstice, that is the shortest day and the longest night of the year. In a time when all else in nature loses its vitality and foliage, the evergreen tree serves as a picture of life that endures, a beacon of hope and a reminder that life will soon return. 
Yet in spite of this, in spite of all that the evergreen tree represents as it's planted in the soil, we chop them down and cut them off from their roots, and in doing so, they lose all their source of livelihood. Or if all of that becomes too inconvenient, we replace those evergreen trees with something artificial so as to try to preserve that which would otherwise inevitably fade and die. But regardless, my point is, the Christmas tree so quickly withers and unironically demonstrates the underlying human condition. Because the truth is that we as humans long for something that will actually last. We want to become the kinds of people who, like the evergreen tree, can endure seasons of darkness and dryness with vibrancy and vitality. We want to be the kinds of people as the church who shine the light of Jesus into the darkest places. We aspire to grow in spiritual maturity, to become the kinds of people who can be distinguished from the world in the way that we uniquely love in holiness and are firmly planted in the truth. People who aren't ultimately shaken by our circumstances or the highs and lows and transitions that inevitably come, but rather to be those who are strengthened by what our God intends to teach us through them. This is the true longing and desire and basic human need beneath all others that may serve us and present themselves. A thirst for a consistent source of life that provides us with that vitality and livelihood that we seek, that we may develop to be more and more of the people that have endurance. The question then for us is, how can we live in a way that develops our spiritual vitality Or to put it another way, how do we as disciples of Jesus become people who are able to withstand the highs and lows and the ebbs and flows of life with endurance? That is the question that we will circle back to again and again as people until we locate and embrace the remedy for us. Psalm 1 identifies for us both what we need and the instruction for how we can receive it. Because what we desperately need is a vitality and an endurance that can only be developed through deepened intimacy with our God. So, would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning as we open God's Word? Father, I thank you for this morning that you have given us and for your continual grace and mercy. I thank you, Lord, for making yourself known to us through your Word. And I ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Would you open our eyes to see things the way that you do, sharpen our minds to perceive your truth with greater clarity, and soften our hearts to love what you love. So let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Okay, so... Psalm chapter 1, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter 1. We'll be covering verses 1 through 6 this morning, or if you would prefer to follow along on the YouVersion app, you can open there as well. Psalm 1, out of the New American Standard, reads, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked 
will perish. This is the word of the Lord. I'm persuaded that we can narrow our focus on the truth presented for us here in Psalm 1 by evaluating two main premises or claims that are made, which are followed by one primary implication. So the first premise is that the consequence of sin is separation from God. The second is that true blessing is received by those who desire God's instruction, and then the implication for us is to choose to actively participate in life with God. So once again, the first premise is that participation in sin separates us from God. And the very first indication of this in the passage is found in the very first verse. If you take a moment to consider the first three verbs here, walking, standing, sitting, you'll notice that there's sort of an implied progression from one to the other. I sort of picture this like you have a destination set in place, and as you're going, you're walking, you're making forward progress, and then all of a sudden, there are distractions that take your focus away, and all of a sudden, you find yourself standing among people whose behaviors you become familiar and comfortable with, and so you decide to take a seat. And taking a seat to the point where all forward progress and momentum is lost. And I think that that really captures the heart of the, the picture here, because the drift or the fade I believe, further into sin begins with a person who is, here, hardened in heart as they continue on practicing sin. In the case of verse 1, what might begin simply as taking bad advice quickly leads to active and voluntary participation in sin and eventually a bitterness toward God and his people, like Pharaoh that Dave, Pastor Dave, preached about a few weeks ago, who had hardened his heart so much so that he couldn't even receive or appreciate the grace of God that was extended to him. Both the mockery of innocence and the inability to appreciate God's goodness is the height of sin and the furthest point of separation from God in the human experience. To paint this picture with more shadow and texture, the psalmist provides us with the image of the chaff if you look to verse 4. The chaff is what's left of the wheat after it's been separated from its seed and winnowed and chopped up. There's no longer any life within it, nothing grounding it in the soil, and nothing to keep it from being blown and tossed by the wind. Similar to the Christmas tree that slowly withers and loses its needles once it's cut off from its roots, so too the chaff loses all of its value when it's separated from its source of life. The temporal and fleeting nature of the chaff and the Christmas tree both display sobering pictures of the state of our world because the truth is that whether we acknowledge it or not, we as humans desire, we ache, we long for Eden, for intimacy with God, to intimately dwell together with God and the rest of creation in harmony. Eden was this place in Genesis where labor produced plentiful beauty for all to enjoy in abundance and safety. And it was here that a covenant was made between God and Adam in which his obedience would result in blessing and fruitfulness. But it was there that man disobeyed God and that sin resulted in separation from the garden and from God. In that time that followed, separation or distance from God and his people only continued to increase, so much so to the point that just three told. Three chapters later, we're told in Genesis 6-5 that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. In Deuteronomy and Judges, we're told that apart from God's covenant and law, our sin and separation continue as everyone simply does whatever seems right 
in their own eyes. Again, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that participation in sin creates separation from God. Sin skews our judgment and detaches us from reality. This detachment from reality, though, is more of a slow fade or drift than it is a sudden turning. On a societal level, like John Wesley once said, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. But on a more personal level, over the course of time, when the need for closeness and intimacy with God is left unmet, there are two main ways, from my observation, that humans respond. Either A, we distract ourselves from our true need and desire, or B, we compromise and settle for a cheaper alternative. So for the first, we distract ourselves. This, perhaps most commonly today, uh, comes in the form of digital impulses and addictions. Ironically, I found this to be somewhat true earlier this week as I was, you know, doing some research for the sermon and, you know, I had just finished reading about the effects that smartphones have had on the human attention span and about how, on average, humans now have shorter attention spans than goldfish. And I thought, wow, how unfortunate for humanity. It blew my mind, right? But then, of course, I decided that I was, you know, getting a little tired and I wasn't as sharp as I, you know, wanted to be in my study. So I took about a five-minute break and, well, in this five-minute break, I instinctively reached for my phone and started scrolling, and then I, of course, checked my watch, and the five-minute break lasted for 30 minutes. So, you know, it was that sort of innocent therapeutic scrolling to ease my fatigue or to escape from my responsibility that ultimately detached me from reality. What's worse is that as time goes on, this detachment is reinforced over and over, and it can lead to an inability to sit with someone without being distracted, and without the ability to offer full, focused attention and an unhurried presence. That's just one way, in my observation, that humans respond to an unmet need, and in other ways, by compromising or settling for a cheaper alternative. Right? So have you ever tried to save a couple of bucks by going with an off-brand product? Maybe you chose to do this with some of your Christmas gifts that you bought for folks, um, kids understand this, you know, mom, can we buy the Pop-Tarts? No, we have the great value toaster pastries at home. Oh, but they're not the same, right? You know, a better example might be from when I was in high school. Each year, our basketball coach would choose for us a particular team shoe uh, so that we would match and be unified. And I can remember before, my, before the beginning of my junior season, my coach had chosen for us uh, the budget model of the shoe that we really wanted and that we probably should have gotten. And, you know, while I can appreciate that he was trying to save us a couple bucks, uh, the truth is that three weeks into the season, half of our varsity team had blown straight through the shoes or had blown straight through the ligaments in their ankles. So, you know, I, <laughs> without question, there was a sacrifice in quality. And they just didn't last in the way that we needed them to. At best, like I said, your shoes would tear. And at worst, the ligaments in your ankle would tear. So both are horrible alternatives, if you ask me. But you get the point. All of this is just to say that there are certain things that you can't replace the value of. You can't substitute the real thing without a consequence or a harmful sacrifice. And those are, I mean, relatively trivial examples. I should clarify by saying that buying the cheaper Pop-Tarts or shoes is not always a bad thing, but if you seriously think about this, isn't this true at a more deeper and more fundamental level? 
I mean, how often, I think of folks my age, when a basic need or desire for intimacy is left unmet, do people settle, settle for something like a one-night stand or pornography? I mean, we're given these gifts from God like marriage and sexuality and relationships that he created as good and beautiful for wholeness, but we cheapen and pervert them when we decide not to use them according to his design and instruction. Those are just a few examples of ways that we as people, and I would invite you to consider other ways maybe that we violate and short-circuit what God has meant to provide for wholeness and goodness. The truth is that our desires are not neutral. The way that we respond to them in one way or another either leads us closer to the heart of our Heavenly Father or further into our own destruction. Verse 6. In our desire for Eden, in our desire for intimacy with God, which is creation's deepest longing, who or what will we choose to turn to as we seek fulfillment? In a world filled with noise and distraction coming from all sides, what voices do we choose to listen to? Do we have an ability to offer God our focused attention and sustained focused presence so that we can hear him clearly? Because separation from God, hardness of heart, and a detachment from reality begin with what seem to be small choices and compromises, compromises, excuse me, in which we settle for something less than fundamentally joy and intimacy with God. So participation in sin separates us from God. And the second premise is that true blessing is received by those who receive and who desire God's instruction. If you go back to Psalm 1, the man who is described as blessed in verse 1 is not only identified by all of the things that he doesn't do and that he doesn't give his attention to, but rather he's also characterized by the things that he does do in the verses that follow. It's important to clarify that blessed here appears as a noun, in this case to designate one who has received God's blessing, a recipient of gladness and favor and provision from God, So those who are blessed, verse 2, are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And that phrase, the law of the Lord, is also often rendered the Torah of Yahweh. And the Torah is usually understood to be the first five books of the Hebrew Bible broadly, and the law of Moses given at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 specifically. But what's important, and I'd even say crucial for us, to understand is that this law that often seems obscure to us goes far beyond the civil laws for the people at the time. In many cases, the Torah, or the law of the Lord, as it's referenced, has more to do with God's instruction for and his covenant with his people. The law of the Lord does not only outline God's demands for his people, but with his demands always come corresponding promises. Over and over in Deuteronomy, we get a beautiful picture of this reality as God's people are given instruction for how to live, and alongside that, they receive a covenant promise from God that he will provide for them and bless them and that he will be with them. Psalm 1 tells us that true blessing is promised to those who delight in God's instruction and who meditate on it day and night or continually. Delight and meditation work hand in hand as each one contributes to the increase of the other. But what is unfortunate is that meditation as a concept and a practice is one that often carries with it a bit of confusion and even a negative connotation sometimes as we think of these Eastern practices of 
uh, mysticism or contemplation where it's all about emptying your mind of all things so that you can be open to the instruction and teaching of the universe and subjectivity. But Christian meditation, however, differs from these fundamentally in the sense that it's actually not at all about trying to empty the mind of all thought, but rather meditation, as the Bible speaks about it, has to do with fixing your mind on the truth and allowing the truth to speak to your heart in a powerful way. And we need this because our hearts and minds are not morally neutral. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit to fill our minds with the truth of the living word in a way that transforms our hearts and desires and affections from the inside out. In the Bible, the assumption is made that we all meditate on something in the same way that it assumes that we all worship something. Scripture doesn't concern itself primarily with whether or not we meditate, but rather who or what we choose to meditate on. Day and night, we're already meditating in the sense that we're naturally inclined to fixate and to dwell on something. James Wilhoyt was a longtime professor at Wheaton College, and he describes meditation simply at its most basic level as obsessing over, scheming about, or daydreaming about something that we value. Psalm 19, if you want to turn there, is attributed to David, and he wrote at great lengths about the value that he placed on the law of the Lord, as he described it as perfect, restoring the soul, and similarly, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The, the commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. David desired that which he valued. He placed supreme value on God's instruction and law. He had experienced their benefits. And his conclusion is in verse 10 of Psalm 19, that they are more desirable than the most precious things of the earth, like gold and honey. If, by reading Scripture, we're exposing ourselves to God's Word, meditation on Scripture is taking that a step further where we allow the Word of God to soak into our hearts and our minds, saturating in the text and being nourished and transformed by it as we allow the living Word of God to correct and to guide our thoughts and actions. Ultimately, this practice of meditation isn't about following a strict method or process beyond simply slowing down, taking it in, and taking it with you. As a result, then, it can be practiced day and night, so to speak, in the sense that it constantly holds its value, both when you feel like it and when you don't, both in good and trying times, in questioning and uncertainty, the benefit and the blessing is promised. Meditation is effective when we let down our guard and give God permission to act upon us in a way that powerfully moves our hearts and corrects our thinking and brings it into alignment with the perspective of God so that we may see things the way that he does, or more simply, to see reality as it truly is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that we want in any case to rise up from our meditation in a different state than when we sat down. We want to meet Christ himself through the word. We want to turn to the text in our desire to hear what it is that he wants to give us and teach us that day. 
as God renews our minds and transforms our hearts through his word, we can better understand the biblical meaning of other words that appear here in this passage too, like fruitfulness and prosperity in verse 3. The image of the tree that is firmly planted by streams of water gives us an idea of what vitality and endurance and fruitfulness looks like. The stream of water that perpetually provides life to the tree is a helpful way of thinking about how the instruction of God is a source of life and nourishment for the believer. Deep roots are ultimately what connect the tree to the streams of water and allow it to bear fruit. And so too, depth and relational knowledge of God through the truth of his word is what sustains the believer in dry seasons and cultivates love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest. The fruit is just the natural result of what a tree does when it has the nutrients that it needs from the water and the sunlight and all the rest. It has more to do with the tree being connected to a source of life. Proximity and closeness then to that source of life is the determining factor. That's why verse 6 really lands this point, because God's knowledge of the way of the righteous is far more than a mere mental knowledge, as it too is a, an intimate and relational knowledge, or an embrace, as Robert Alter puts it. Going into my <clears throat> sophomore year of college, I was paired with a few different roommates one of which I had never met before and I essentially knew nothing about, recipe for success. I wanted to learn more about this guy before I moved in to live with him and share space with him for eight months, so I asked around to try to figure out and learn about what he was like, and I remember I talked to a few people that I would be living with this individual who they knew, and uh, each time their response was sort of the same. It was sort of a step back, really? You know, you and hit and I was sort of, at that point, a little bit concerned. Like, okay, you know, like, what, what's, the, what's the problem here? And each of them pretty much told me, well, you and this guy are complete opposites. I mean, if, he's, if you're in bed by 11, he's out partying on the weekends. If, you know, you're straight-laced or whatever, he was arrested last year. Like, I just don't see how this is going to work out. And I, at that point, I was halfway intrigued, halfway uh, concerned, um, but, you know, as you do when you get to live with people, you have conversations and you get to know each other better. And first interaction with this individual, you know, the descriptions that I heard were pretty accurate. Uh, but, you know, as time went on, all of us roommates, there were four of us, began to talk and get to know each other better. And come to find out, this guy, his name was Jeffrey, by the way, uh, he told us that he actually had a background in the church, but that he didn't own a physical Bible, and he had sort of lost touch. And so, of course, my roommate and I are like, man, we got to get this guy a Bible. Like, what are we doing? Um, and if I'm being honest, still, you know, we gave him an old beat-up Bible, but, you know, I really didn't necessarily expect him to read it. Um, but I'll tell you, I was shocked that for the next few weeks, at least, I, would, I was typically an early riser, and I would step out into our living room, and I would see Jeffrey on the couch with an open Bible out in front of him. And I thought, okay, you know, interesting. I, still, again, like cynical, not really sure, like, if he's offended by what he's reading or if he, like, understands it. And I told myself, you know, it probably won't last. But the fact of the matter is that it 
did last, and he began asking questions. It began with curiosity, and there was an unquestionable shift in the ways that he began to talk and to spend his time and to act and all the rest. That year, he went on to get involved in a local church where he was discipled and offered accountability and solid community. And fast forward just a few weeks ago, well over a year and a half after I first met Jeffrey, we sat down to catch up over lunch, and I, I love it now. I sit down with him, and my first question for him is, you know, Jeffrey, like, what are you learning, man? What's the Lord been teaching you? And he takes that and just runs with it. And, you know, the Lord is moving in his life, and he still carries that beat-up Bible with him everywhere he goes as a reminder of the truth that grounds him. And fundamentally, without perfection, fundamentally, the trajectory of my friend Jeffrey's life was radically changed. I mean, you talk to him now, and the desires that he has are different. The things he's chasing after and that he values now are different. The choices that he makes. Given his background, though, and who he used to brush shoulders with, he is now able to share the gospel with people and in places that people who would never set foot in a church otherwise. And Jeffrey now is planted was and is planted by a stream of water that causes him to grow and to bear fruit and benefit with that fruit, to benefit and to bless those around him, myself included. And I think that that is a picture of what true prosperity looks like in verse, at the end of verse 3. Not fruit to be consumed for the benefit of oneself, but to be for the benefit of those in the tree's environment. So participation in sin separates us from God True blessing is received by, the, by those who desire God's instruction. And then the inference, then, is for us to choose to actively participate in life with God. But my question is, will you choose to do this? What will you choose to do with some of the most valuable things that you have? For example, your time and attention in the margins of your schedule what are the first things, what is the first thing that your mind wanders to after you finish that task? Are you able to slow down and embrace times of silence and make yourself available to people and to God? You could also consider where your love and affection is going, what your desire is for, you could say, or where your loyalties lie. Our desires heavily influence our actions and the way that we think. And the Holy Spirit is ultimately the only one who has the power to transform our desires. So this is something that we have to pray for and depend on God to bring about. I hear a lot of people, especially those who are my age, who say that they have problems or addictions or certain habits of behavior that are keeping them from coming to God. And they're convinced that they have to grit their teeth to try to change their behavior by their own strength before anything else. But my whole proposition here is that your behavior isn't ultimately the problem that's keeping you from God. Your behavior is just the result of what happens when you try to medicate and compensate for the real problem, which is an unmet need for intimacy with God. So instead of making this new year empty <clears throat> resolutions to improve your speech or thought life or behavior, pray that God would just give you a glimpse of himself through his word. When he does, I promise, because he promises, 
that the desires of your heart will change first, and then the corresponding behavior and fruitfulness and obedience will follow. It is a delight to be taught and instructed by God to learn to love what he loves and to see things the way he does. Because that's really the litmus test. Are you willing to let the Bible correct and inform your behavior and thinking and worldview? Whether actively or passively, we are being formed and developed constantly in the same way that a young child is formed by both the presence or the absence of a parent in their life during their developmental years, so too we are fundamentally formed or shaped according to the state of our relationship with our God. I find it fascinating that here in Psalm 1 we're given this picture of a tree and a stream of water as a symbol of life. But the point is that God's people, when living according to God's design, are the ones who themselves become like that tree. We become living symbols and testimonies that point all the way to the end of the Bible, to the very last chapter in Revelation 22, where we're told about another tree and stream of living water. We're told that this river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb to perpetually nourish and grant eternal vitality to the tree, allowing it to bear fruit and to provide healing to the nations. So too, when we as disciples of Jesus are deeply rooted in life with God, we become beacons of hope and living proof that restoration and eternal life is found in the word of God. We become the kinds of people that God works through to bear fruit to establish his rule here on earth as it is in heaven, and to bring all people to himself. So the question then for us still follows, where will you choose to plant yourself this new year in this time of transition? Looking forward into 2024, what is your trajectory? I invite you to consider this because your trajectory is essentially the sum of your habits, routines, and practices. So consider where are yours taking you? As a church, as Pastor Ben shared briefly earlier, our trajectory, our next series is all about putting first things first when it comes to these practices, specifically when it comes to seeking God in prayer. That's where we're going, and the outcome or whatever becomes of that ultimately is in the Lord's hands. We entrust to him the result. Participation in sin separates us from God. Second premise is that true blessing is received by those who desire God's instruction. So then the implication and my question for you today is will you choose to actively participate in life with God. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning as we close? Father, thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. I pray that going forward from here and into the new year, that your Holy Spirit would make us aware of our need for you and God, awaken us to the grace that you give. We praise you for all the grace that we've received and we acknowledge that we continually depend on you for every good thing. May your word land on fertile soil in our hearts, Lord. Amen. Go forth now into the new year, equipped with God's 
instruction and with his promised blessing. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 1030 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.